this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Well, I hope everything is off to a grand start in your neck of the woods as we get into this episode of the Jay Allen Show. Yeah, a little different vibe today, and that is for sure. As we get started going down the path, let's talk about what we have in store for you today. Today, I get to speak to the one and the only Rachel Walla Walla. with over 325,000 views of her safety videos on YouTube. Hold on. Are you a subscriber? If you're not, go now. No, seriously, pause it and go right now and subscribe if you have not subscribed to Rachel Walla's YouTube channel. Okay. Now that you've done that, let's continue going on down the path here for a moment. Rachel Walla has over 325,000 views of her safety videos on her YouTube channels. She also has a CSP and a CIH. Over 10 years of experience inside of the industry, she's also the owner of Ally Safety, serves clients both in the US and abroad. And don't worry, she will operate heavy machinery if you're short-staffed. Rachel Walla does a little bit of everything. So let me not get you hung up too long with this and let's get started with the conversation with Rachel Walla right now on The Jay Allen Show. Rachel, I appreciate this. I know that I went out, I mean, I know that we kind of went the back and forth game and then you vanished off the face of my planet because of how my um, my spam filter works. So I apologize about that. <laughs> To do this you know, I get spammed a lot and I, I used to travel internationally all the time. And I think that's part of it, um, is I get flagged as like coming from other countries and stuff like that. And so I get spammed more than the average person. Okay. Cause I, I mean, I know that we were so close at one point and I think there was a phone issue. I think you ended up going onto your phone opposed to this. And then it was just kind yeah. of more than I was like, I think I lost her, but I have to tell you, what ended up happening was I originally found your videos online, and I was so impressed. I think the first one that I had seen was the one that you did with The Office. And I was like, this is such a genius approach to doing this. But I was like, I haven't seen anybody do this before. But then that kind of puts me too far ahead of what I really want to ask you about. My whole question about how I start most of this is, how did you get involved in this world of safety? I mean, most people don't just start off in this. But yeah, you're making this fun somehow. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, like, you know, there's that saying, like, safety doesn't happen by accident. Right. But everybody that I know in safety has ended up there by accident. <laughs> so, so safety does kind of happen by accident when it's your career, I guess. But um, for me, uh, I was, I grew up in Montana. My family has a logging and excavating business. And, you know, we always worked with my dad growing up and stuff. So, I was very comfortable around heavy machinery and stuff like that from a young age. And when I went to go to college, I'm first generation college, and I didn't really know what to go for. And the nearest school to where I grew up is similar to the Colorado School of Mines. It's called Montana Tech, and it's all engineering. So at the time, I thought, okay, I'm going to go with what makes money because that seemed like a really solid choice. So I ended up in petroleum engineering. And my first summer, I got an internship in Texas. 
And I was working in Texas and mostly just like changing oil on pump jacks and stuff like that. And it was such a culture shock. Like there was so much money going around and there was just so much of a boom in the oil at that point. And it was just like something that it was really hard for me to comprehend because I came from like this small mining town where the mine had shut down 20 years before. And there was just like no industry and everybody really struggled. Well, let me and, ask you a couple of questions real quick before you continue. So where in Texas do you end up during this time frame, and roughly what year are we talking about? Okay. So this would have been, oh man, this is so long ago. This would have been like 2007. So okay. long time ago before the economy crashed. And I was in Bryan College Station. Oh, I, I know exactly where that is. Go, <laughs> Aggies, Gigum or Gagum, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, yeah. And like, if you've been like, you know, you spend some time in Texas versus small town Montana, like same country, but very different, very different cultures. So it's super fascinating. Anyway, um, I came back after that summer and was like, you know, I don't know if petroleum engineering is right for me. And so I changed majors a couple times in different engineering realms and trying to figure out what to do. And then the economy crashed. And I got this job one summer. It was like my second summer in college and I was planting trees. And <laughs> planting trees like is a very manual job. You have this tool, it's called a hoe dad. And it's basically like a hoe and you have to plant trees. And we had to meet a quota of 600 trees a day. So really manual job out on this this land that used to be a wetlands, there was like super hard ground. <laughs> There's all. Where did, did you find this thing? I mean, what were you doing? Were you trying to look for worst possible scenarios? Of <laughs> I was like, what is the most miserable job I could possibly find? <laughs> no, I mean, like I was used to logging with my dad at that point. And so I had done some pretty rough work and this was paying $12 an hour, which was really good at the time. Um, <laughs> And so I went for it and uh, did that for the summer. And at one point, they needed somebody who could help unload trucks. And, and you signed up for this, too. I mean, I, I see where this is going. <laughs> I was like a broke college student. I was like, I'll, I can do it. So they needed somebody who could run a forklift. And it wasn't a normal forklift. It was a trailer with fork. Uh, it was a tractor with forks on it. And I can run a tractor. So I was like, okay. I can do this. And so I started coming in on Saturdays to unload the loads of plants that would come in. And pretty soon they were like, hey, we need a safety person. And I'd taken a few safety courses in college. And I was like, okay, I'll, I can do that. So I started doing safety and I really liked it. I switched my major and I've been in safety ever since. Okay. So roughly what year are we talking then? So you said 2007 with the other, what are we talking about roughly now? Yeah. So I graduated in 2000. 11. So it would have okay. been 2011 by the time it was all said and done. So when you decide to change fully into safety, what is the career path or what is the degree that you're going after at the time? Because as we know, things have changed significantly over the years, but what is the degree trajectory or at least what is the, the name associated to the degree at the time? Yeah, that's a good question because it varies a lot. So at Montana Tech, it was actually an occupational safety and health degree. And I took a lot of industrial hygiene classes with that as well. But we did it a little bit differently because it's such a, an engineering school. They have like two sides. They do engineering and nursing. So I would do like when you do a degree from tech, you do like physics and calculus and stuff with the engineers. And then you do anatomy and physiology and those types of courses with the nurses. And so you end up with a pretty intense OSH degree overall. It was actually a really good experience. 
So you don't, so you look back and you love how it actually came about. So how far along are you when you say, I'm going to flip to go full-time safety? You've already committed to how many other courses at this time? How many I years mean, are you already like, in college? I was two years in. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm hoping that mostly only the basics were done at that time then. Yeah, they were mostly <laughs> the basics. I, I know a lot more about geology than the average safety person, I would say, but that's also kind of a hobby. So that's fine. Got it. So as you're doing this and you're going through the different things inside of safety, let's just kind of be realistic because of the time frame, And of course, you being a female, how difficult is you is it for you at this time? I mean, you're going into an industry that's mostly male dominated. So how is that actually coming about, especially coming freshly out of college? and then going into a male-dominated industry? You know, it's kind of interesting. I think there are some difficulties with it, but in a way, I I was kind of lucky because, you know, I grew up in a family where it's a family-owned business and it's logging. And so loggers are, you know, they're a little rough around the edges and that's who I was used to interacting with, like salt of the earth, good people, but just like a totally male-dominated industry. And I had worked with my dad all through high school. So I was very used to that. And then college was, you know, there would be like six guys to every one girl in class. So that was just a continuation. And then going into industry, when I graduated, I moved out to Portland and started working in factories out here. And that was actually a big change because they were so much more sophisticated in their approach and, you know, having uh, like a, a lot more established businesses Uh, they were much more female friendly than I actually expected them to be. So in some ways it was a positive overall. So how do you like that change all of a sudden then you're going from, you're going from Idaho, Montana area to all of a sudden, I mean, in Oregon, depending on where you're at, especially in the Portland area, there's some like artsy sides of that town. So how do you like this, this change of venues all of a sudden? Well, it's, it's like, I think my life really kind of attests to how different the culture throughout the United States is, you know, like Portland being extremely progressive and liberal and stuff like that. Even when you're working in the industrial atmosphere, you still get a lot of that, uh, you know, and so it was really different. But it was so nice in a way, too, because I think that being in a more forward thinking area as a woman in a more male dominated industry, it's more inclusive overall than some of the other places. Like if I go to other parts of the country and in visiting different work sites, you see some of those tensions more there than I've experienced out here in Portland. So in a way it's been great, but it's also just really nice to see different parts of the country and interact with so many different types of people. Like that was really eye-opening for me. So you're going down the process, you're becoming a safety professional, you're getting to see all these different things. At what point do you say, I got an idea, I want to change part of how the industry observes at things. And you go, I'm going to go on YouTube and do some safety videos. How does this come about? (laughs) Well, um, so it started a long time ago. Like I've always been really interested in video and stuff and being more of an artistic person. I really enjoy it. And I like comedy, but I don't really get to do much of that. You know, in my current role. You're um, in safety. It's all comedy. Let's be realistic. If you, if, like, if you don't laugh, you're going to be in all kinds of trouble. Yeah, you're going to be in a lot of pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I decided like in 2017, kind of taking my unique perspective and what I thought I could offer the industry. Like what I have trouble with is I think that safety has a lot to offer a lot of people. But the problem is it's kind of packaged wrong. 
you know, it's not interesting. It's not attractive. It's not like, like when you hear safety training, you kind of have this internal groan that automatically comes up. It shouldn't be that miserable. I, I think I think root canal right away, to be honest with you. Exactly. <laughs> and like, we're talking about things that are literally life and death. You know, if you don't understand these concepts, you could be killed at work. And so it's Absolutely. so crucial. It's so crucial that people understand it. And it's so ridiculous that it has to be so boring. Like it just doesn't have to be. You know, like my classic example is the History Channel takes some things that were really not very exciting events and makes them sound significant and engaging and interesting. And I don't know why we can't do the same thing. There's a really rich and fascinating history with safety. And so what I want to do is express that. Um, I'm a little bit limited in how much I can, how much content I can put out. Generally, it's about one video a week. So I try to hit the top high hitting concepts, but I'm working more and more towards getting into like deeper dives into things like, you know, like the interesting history behind the hazard communication program. Like we don't think about these things, but did you know, like back in the old matchstick factories, exposure to white phosphorus would cause people's jaws to literally rot out of their faces. I had no clue, but it sounds like a perfectly good video that should be coming to a YouTube channel near you. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating story. It's horrific. But it's like, you know, we don't talk about these things. We, in safety, don't have time as a safety manager to put this much effort into training. But me, making videos, I have more time to do this now. So that's what I want to do. But you kind of do a combination of both worlds. And I hope that you're okay with me saying this, because besides that you have a, we'll say, not a normal, but you have a, a daily job that you go to, but you're also doing this on the side yeah. in regards of doing the video aspect. So are you seeing because of how popular you're becoming on the social media aspects on people requesting specialty videos from you? Are you seeing anything to that extent yet? Or you're just seeing a lot of engagement with the videos that you're currently putting out? Yeah, I'm definitely getting more and more requests for custom videos. And that was kind of like what I wanted to roll this into eventually anyway, because I feel like there's really a need there for it. It was just, it took a while for me to get my footing in the video industry to where we were like ready to do that. But I recently just did a big training for um, a logging company and I've been working with some other companies out there and I finally got a film crew that I'm like really excited to work with. So oh, that's, that's kind of cool. the awesome thing. Yeah, we have drones, we have GoPros, we have <laughs> gimbals, we've got everything we need to make this awesome. So we're going for it. So as you have visualized the way that training should change in regards of how things are done inside of the industry, what is the big, what's the big picture vision of, the, of what you have going on? I mean, I, you add some interesting elements because there is some seriousness to your videos, but there's a lot of comedy tied into it as well, but it's, it doesn't get lost in translation. So yeah, where, well, do you, where, where do you, where do you see this actually going? Like where, where would you like to see the industry at? I mean, there has to be some kind of goal. And I mean, of course, I don't want to get, I don't want you to give away your trade secrets on what you're wanting to do, but also at the same time, you have to have this vision because you're taking these things that are already existing to some extent and doing some things with it. But what is your goal? Like, what are you seeing that it should go forward to? I think it should go forward to really high quality productions. I mean, you know, if, if Mike Rowe can make, make his show, what was it? Uh, Dirty Jobs. I don't know why we can't do dangerous jobs. You know, there is a richness there. There's a story. There's a fascinating background. And we can do that sort of richness in a training environment. So adults learn really well by storytelling 
And we learn by things that we already understand. So we've got a comfort level there. And I think sometimes what is left out in videos that are produced and created by people who don't work in industrial environments is an appreciation of the beauty of the environment and how interesting it is. You know, so for example, this logging video I recently did, we were able to get some amazing, cool drone shots of like skitters and processors and all those interacting from this, you know, seeing it from the sky and looking down in. And then you can get these closer shots of like, you know, chokers being tied and the gloves. And and it gives you such a sense of space and feeling that when you go to do the training point, you have that context already there. And, you know, like I lead the trainings that I do on my YouTube video because most of it's done by me at this point. But um, some really cool things are when you have people in the industry that are willing to be on camera and willing to talk about things and explain things. And it gives it so many layers of depth as well. And like now we're talking about virtual reality training and things like that. Virtual reality is awesome and it's great. And it's an engaging way to, to get people going into their safety training to where they can visualize what's going to happen on such a deeper level than they have before that I think that the possibilities are haven't even scratched the surface yet. This is The Jay Allen Show. We all want to make sure that our family is protected in medical emergencies. What many of us don't realize is that health insurance won't always cover the full amount of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you could get hit with high deductibles and co-pays. That's why an Air MedCare Network membership is so important. As a member... If an emergency arises, you won't see a bill for air medical transport when flown by an AMCN provider. Best of all, a membership covers your entire household for as little as $85 a year. AMCN providers are called upon to transport nearly 100,000 patients a year. This is coverage no family should go without. Now, as a Jay Allen Show listener, you'll get up to a $50 e-gift card with a new membership. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash safety and use the offer code safety. And don't forget to tell them that Jay Allen sent you. And we are back on the Jay Allen Show on Safety FM. So you bring up virtual reality. So I'm, of course, going to bring up the other side of the equation. How do you look at this then tying into as well to augmented reality, which seems to be becoming more and more popular now? You know, that's something I don't know a whole lot about. So I wouldn't be sure how we're going to manage that road in an industrial environment. And I'm interested to hear what you think, too, because I feel like we're a little bit slow overall to adopt a lot of technology. So it'd be interesting to see where we go from here. Well, the, the, I, I always look at it that you have to have some of the bigger players kind of jump in for things to advance. So let's kind of look at some timelines going back a few years. Everybody was aware that there was a product that came out that was called Google Glass, where a good chunk of people were aware of it. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, it was that you would wear these glasses. Of course, they didn't really look like much of glasses, but a lot of people knew that they had a camera. And it actually projected internet and augmented reality on the things that were surrounding you. What people did not like was the capability of it having a camera already associated to it. And nobody knew when it was actually recording. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're going to probably go a few years into the future. And there has been some large discussion that Apple is on the verge of releasing their version of glasses. Now, their glasses allegedly will not have what we'll call, quote unquote, a camera tied into it but they are able to display certain things on the screen. Now, 
there is this weird thing on your camera or on your phone currently that will be able to pick up the signals that are around in the general area that are called LIDAR. LIDAR. So it's able to pick up and kind of discern what the room looks like. So I'm assuming that there will be some level of tie-in to that. So that would give you the the option. So let's say, for instance, right now you had a newer iPhone. We'll just use that as a perfectly good example. And you had the IKEA app. As long as that phone has that LiDAR option on there, and there is a piece of furniture from the IKEA store that you were interested in, as long as the phone is pointing to the area where you would want that piece of furniture, it would give you a fake or an automated reality version of what that room would look like with that piece of furniture there that's not really there. So this ties into something that I think that if we start seeing it inside of the safety industry, we could do a lot of strange things and maybe even some cool things, depending <laughs> on how that will actually go forward. I like that we could do a lot of strange things with this technology. <laughs> well, well, it's true because let's think about it for a moment. If you turn around and let's say, for instance, that somebody has never seen a catastrophic event, mm-hmm. you could actually put it into an area allow, saying that an app would allow you to do so. Not a lot of people are going to want to see that. Because if you've ever been involved with a catastrophic event, you know that it changes a lot in, on the way that you look at things. Absolutely, yeah. So that's why I say that technology is good and bad depending on how you want to look at it. But it's some strange stuff that you can do. I don't always try to go to scarcity, which is an easy thing to do. But also at the same time, too, you want to be able to see what other different things you can do. I mean, a lot of the virtual reality that I'm seeing now is that it trains people on how to do X mm-hmm. in, in most organizations, which is fine. The problem that we're running into with, of course, with everything going on because of how the pandemic is hand is actually went through. Not a lot of people are volunteering to be using virtual reality at the moment. And it's not like a lot of people actually have it at home. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as widespread as you would think, being that it's pretty easy to buy the headset and kind of get it started. You know, you can even get virtual reality cameras that aren't that expensive. So it's interesting that it's not quite there yet. Well, the, um, the, inter- the interesting part about that is that if you kind of remember when when Oculus, which is kind of one of the bigger brands that are out there, before Facebook bought them, you were wired and tethered to a computer. That was really the way that it is. Oh, they have actually I didn't do, see that version. Uh, oh, yes. So, they, so they're now advanced enough that you don't have to be tethered to a computer. But legitimately, they probably gave you, give or take, probably about 10 feet to move from that computer and you were all wired down. Whoa. I mean, there, and there are still some <laughs> level of wires now, but you could only do it based on the power of the actual computer and the length that you could go. The reason why I know this is because I had to be an early adapter, of course. So I had to have it. And I was just like, wow, this is really interesting. I wish <laughs> I, awesome. I wish I understood programming. Yeah, for sure. You know what I think of though, when I think of like how we could potentially use this, it's not so much in the everyday procedural trainings, although it's useful there too. But it's like, I think of things like confined space training, you know, where you go into a confined space and you put people in a scenario where things don't go as planned, you know, like there's a gas leak or, you know, somebody passes out or faints or whatever. How do you respond then? And you get people to think on their feet and react. And that's where I think it would be pretty useful in safety overall. But there's also this interesting thing that the pandemic has brought up. You know, some companies are using contact tracers to get a better sense of if employees are within six feet of another employee for that 15 minutes or more mark. So they know when they have close contacts. And of course, that also brings up personal privacy concerns and how much data do we give our employers and things like that. And so, you know, I think we're getting into really gray areas that are going to take a long time to probably legislate. And how we've seen it play out, you know, with Tesla doing a lot of their driverless vehicle 
testing is they kind of move forward and then the government tries to catch up, but it takes a long time. So we're going to be in a gray experimental area, it seems like, for probably a long time now. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because I've been recently having some conversations related to deregulation and overregulation, relating to how certain governments certain segments of the government have caused deregulation, but we overregulate these new things inside of industry because of some of the things that we want to add on. I mean, you're giving the perfect example of contact tracing. If it's not regulated, it could be used for what people would be considered evil or bad or however you want to term it. But it's one of those things that you can take a different look on what you're actually tracking also at the same time too. I mean, you can even have that whole conversation talking about technology, about do you do a flex and stretch inside of your inside of your organization, or do you give people devices they must wear to verify how they're actually picking up and moving around inside of places? I mean, it's a whole it's a whole interesting discussion on how technology works inside of the workplace. Yeah, I've actually had this conversation with union reps before because when you have loan workers, you can have them wear personal alarms. So if there's some sort of an impact or something indicating that maybe they've fallen or they haven't moved for a significant period of time, it'll alarm somebody to go check on them. But then you kind of get back into that. Okay, where, where does the line, where do we cross a line here? And we just well, don't I, know yet. Well, I think it has to be very interesting for you because number one, you're interacting there with union workers, but you're also a director at where you're at. So how do people look at you when those questions come about? Yeah. I mean, like for me personally, like I always try to keep people's rights in mind as much as possible. Uh, but you know, when it's hard because like in safety, we're so geared to be worried about people's well-being, And sometimes you can lose sight of that. People would rather take a, have a little bit of risk than be tracked, <laughs> you know, I get that too. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's an interesting combination of both. That's for sure. Because it's the deregulatory portions because I want a little bit more freedom. I, it's just the kind of the way that it works, depending from organization into organization. Yeah. So as, we, as we go down this path, I have a very strange question for you, if you don't mind. Okay. How does your, how does your company feel about the videos that you actually put out? Are they well, pro against, have they found them or they don't even know that you do it? I mean, I always find it. Do, do you have the, the duality of safety? This on? is a good question. Nobody's asked me this before. So I own my own business. So I, I'm self-employed. Um, but occasionally I take contracts for larger employers. So let's say they need a safety manager for three months while they hire somebody else. Like I, I prefer to be a contractor and a consultant. So that's what I do. Um, and sometimes like, I'll be like, Hey, just so you know, I have this YouTube channel. This is what I do. Um, and I think usually when people hear that you have a safety YouTube channel, they're probably like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of weird. That's what you do in your free time. <laughs> So they don't really check it out. But I've had other situations where like, um, I don't disclose it because I don't really need to. Um, and so maybe some contractor that I've worked with for a couple weeks will come up and be like, hey, I saw one of your videos on YouTube. And usually the response is really positive. But I always try to be careful because my own personality, um, like I have a sense of humor. I like using videos. I like using the office. I like using all these different things. But safety can be so dry. And once you vary from that, you get some negative backlash too. So, Of course, because it's yeah. not the norm. I mean, and if we're being realistic and honest on this, 
most of the people that are in safety, and I love them all, don't don't get me wrong, <laughs> are kind of are kind of those older board members of this is the way it was always done. And of course, the moment you try to change something to be non the the non-style Walter Cronkite and kind of do an update to it, people kind of have some pushback from time to time. Oh yeah, and you know, like I I've had to to like gain a thicker skin through all of this as well. Like if I go on a job site, I'm generally treated with respect, uh, you know, and sometimes it takes people a while to get to know me. I, you know, I'm a very girly girl and I present myself as that. Like I always have makeup on when I go to work. I always have my hair done. Um, I, you know, I'm always dressed up even if I'm on a construction site. That's just who and how I am. So I know that when people see me, there are certain perceptions they may doubt my level of knowledge because I don't look like they maybe think that a safety person in construction should always look. So I'm used to that. The interesting thing on YouTube is it's so image driven that I kind of had to get used to it again. Like I wore a leather jacket in one video and it was just like, you know, I'm not making a statement that I'm some sort of a tough guy. It was just like a jacket that I thought would look good on screen. So I put the jacket on and then in the comments, somebody said something like, you lost all credibility with me because of the leather jacket. And it was like oh one of those times where I just have to take a step back and be like, well, I guess I should have gone to fashion school then, huh? <laughs> like like <laughs> well, so much for this 10 years of experience in safety. But that's the that's the 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 weird thing about what you're doing. And I and I mean that in the best of ways, because you can turn off people that quick by just something as simple as a jacket and they disregard your knowledge base. Because you're do you're putting because here's the thing when you're standing in front of that camera as you already are aware you're putting yourself out there mm-hmm. and th- and that's good bad or indifferent and people will criticize anything and people will recognize good things at any point too I mean I, I, there's kind of the pros and the cons because here's the way that I always look at it if you read the good comments you have to read the bad comments so it has to be a happy medium of both I just say don't read any comments it's easier that way. Yeah, but that's also like I try to get some feedback as well. And it's interesting (laughs) to engage with people. But um, I'm getting to the point where I just kind of take the negatives more as a joke and try to joke back with them rather than getting offended. Because at first it was like, you know, you work so hard on this video and you're putting it out there for free. And like I could be doing other things with my time and stuff. And you get these negative comments and some of them really sting. Like, you know, one girl told me I'd obviously never worked a day in my life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, wow. You know, just stuff like that. And, you know, like, I just, I don't take it seriously anymore. But, you know, you have to build up this sort of, this sort of strength about it. And then also the interesting thing is, I don't think it's taken as seriously for men, but women communicate so much more through their clothing than I think men are expected to. And even little things like if I wear a certain brand, um, it can indicate like a political stance or that I'm anti this industry or pro this industry. And so it gets to the point where you can't really control all of it because you're just a person, you know? Oh, you, you, you must have some examples then. If you went that detailed, something had to happen to you know exactly <laughs> what you wore that people were like, you're making a political statement. Um, I wore a, a Patagonia coat. <laughs> and people lost it over that? They didn't lose it. <laughs> um, but Patagonia is into conservation. And um, there are certain industries who feel like Patagonia is against them. Because they're very, Patagonia is like environmentally conscious and all of that. And so certain industries feel like Patagonia lobbies against them. Um, and to a certain extent, like, uh, you know, they have a point there as well. But um, 
it's just a little difficult because it's like, you know, even the oil companies are into conservation and stuff now, you know, like everybody's kind of coming to this sort of consensus. I mean, but if you look at it, people should then hold you accountable for living in Portland because they're advanced. They do. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, like we're just in this sort of political tension here and overall, like, like we're kind of focusing on the weird and the negative things overall. It's like, hugely positive but um as a safety professional putting myself out there these have just been some of the odd things i've had to deal with and had to realize oh but let's be realistic we mostly as safety pros actually focus on the negative because that's normally what people normally call out (laughs) so that's the only reason i referenced it now i do have a a couple more questions if you don't mind how does it work for you in in with when you're using like something like the office so something like the office was one of the first video of yours that i had seen Mm-hmm. Does YouTube ever say anything to you because that's considered copyrighted material? And I'm just curious on how it works. Yeah, that's a great question. So there is the fair use doctrine, which is actually really difficult to follow. It's kind of a gray gray area in a lot of ways. So you can use clips. You should credit them. But also, like, you have to be kind of discussing about the clip, which I am in the office video. I'm, like, talking about how the office could be seen as, like, portraying safety culture and what we learn yeah. about from the office. Um, and But the problem is like, I used probably too many clips from the office in that one. Um, and so I do have a copyright claim on that video. So I'm monetized on YouTube and any any profits that come from that video go to NBC. Got it. So, so I was, it so happens. That, and, that, and that's, why, then that's why I was curious on that particular one because in, YouTube is a good medium and it's a weird medium all at the same time as well because it wasn't like you were airing the show and saying, oh, yes, you know, I'm trying to, to add myself in as a character. Right. Yeah. And so, um, like, I've researched the fair use stuff and I try to do it as responsibly as possible because it's not a personal account. It's a business account, you know, and um, I always tried to do that, but it's it's a difficult one to follow. Um, and so I just know, like, putting my stuff out there, if I'm not sensitive to it, um, it can be something where, you know, the profits end up going to the company who originated the content. And in the case of the Office one, like, I'm happy with how that video turned out. I'm happy with what it communicates. And I'm happy to be like, yeah, credit to the Office, I guess. Because overall, like, there is a lot of Office clips in there. And I think that's fair. Well, I mean, and they only get normally 1.4 billion downloadable minutes per week. I mean, why would you want to be associated to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask. So have you ever had a video that you created, you put your time into and everything that you did into it, and then all of a sudden you decided not to release the, that particular video? You know, there are ones that I've kind of like maybe uh, turned a little sideways on and decided to do it differently. Um you know, I always want what I put out to be really good. And sometimes the problem with trying to release a video every week and, you know, running my own business and stuff is like, it's, it's a lot of work, like scripting, editing, filming, all of that. And then figuring out the keyword optimization to use on YouTube mm-hmm. is easy. Oh, you're giving away the secrets now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in all fairness, it, it's like, you know, easily 12 hours a week. So you invest, so are you, so you do everything then? I do I know everything. Early, oh, so earlier you said a film crew that you like. So this is not part of the, of the equation at the time then. It so hasn't you do been, everything. It hasn't been a part of the equation on any of the YouTube videos so far. Um, because YouTube videos, you know, they're not for a private client. There's no paid work that's really coming out of it. So it's just been me. 
I think I'm going to start incorporating them into more and more of it. And I'm looking for a good editor. But, you know, I have a distinct style and I want to maintain that. So, uh, so yeah, if it's like 12 hours worth of time every week, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to get everything going on it. Wow, so, if you're, yeah. so if you're like really booked up during that week for your normal, for your normal work, I would imagine this is an, an overnight thing then for you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I work all the time. <laughs> You're not supposed to confess to that, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, if I talk to safety people, we all work all, we work a lot, you know? I know, and but like, I don't think we're supposed to admit it. We're supposed to say, you know, you're supposed to sleep seven to nine hours a day, which I don't even know what that means, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I think if you read, uh, there's like this book called The 48 Laws of Power, and it's talking about everything that you do. You should pretend like it's no effort, you know, like, oh, yes, I uh, I woke up this morning, didn't do any makeup, just walked straight into the studio, did a YouTube video and released it. And then I went and had breakfast. And it's like, <laughs> YouTube does not work that way. <laughs> but that's what but that's what people assume, because here's the thing. For the people that don't or maybe not familiar with your stuff, they might see it for the first time and think you're an overnight sensation, not realizing all the work that you've put into it in regards to the recordings that you've done, the time inside of the industry that you've done. And then all of a sudden now you have a popularized channel. Yeah, but people, I, I can definitely people only see that. the People only see the success and go, oh, overnight sensation. Yeah, they don't see like, you know, the 10 years of industry experience, the hours of studying for the CSP and the CIH and you know, and like, the logging, let's not forget the logging and going all the way down to Texas, too. That is part of the story for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, it, there's, I think, you know, as you well know, with your own podcast and everything, like, it takes so much time and effort. You know, it in the end, like, it may look like an overnight success, but uh, it's overnight success. Like, how mm-hmm. many sleepless nights were put into this? Let's quantify that. I, I always find it fun because I want people to assume whatever they want it to be. If they think it's an overnight success, let them think what they want. We'll just move forward from there. Yeah. So, question, <laughs> so questions, if people wanted to book you for an event, do you do those? Do you actually do speaking engagements and all that kind of fun stuff? And I know with some kind of limitations at the moment uh, due to the pandemic, are you taking any bookings online? Well, I am doing some stuff this year. Um, it's limited with COVID. I haven't actually done any speaking engagements, but I am doing video partnerships with different companies. And you can contact me through my website, which is allysafety.com for any of that. Um, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, we're all trying to be careful and be sensitive and not spread the virus as much as possible. And really, my channel started a little over a year ago. So this is all built up in about the last year. Wow, that's really good. So people want to know exactly about your YouTube channel. Could you give them the address for that as well? Yeah, so it's Ally Safety, A-L-L-Y. A lot of people think it's Ally Safety. I think I look kind of like an alley. So it's YouTube slash C slash Ally Safety. And if you search Ally Safety, I'll come up. It's pretty pretty easy to find. Well, Rachel, I really do appreciate you coming on to the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's nice we could finally get together. I am so happy that it finally did. Want more of The Jay Allen Show? Go to safetyfm.com. 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.